Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Did you know what, Tom? And that second sentence, 4, and uh, Isaiah 44, 20. A man, I say man as a collective term, a man who refuses God. Remember it says in Romans 1 that men refuse God when they knew right. They, uh, they knew God, they refused to know Him, they suppressed the truth of the authority of God, God's right to be the center of the universe. And God gave them up to unclean lust, to have what they wanted, and about the depravity that it finally winded uh, up into. A man who will not acknowledge God is a man who places himself as the center of the universe. He thinks he's in the center of the universe when in reality he's over here. God is in the center of the universe and everything revolves around him. Remember we talked about this before? God is the center of all things and all the rest of us are out here in various places and I look at you and I see you're a creature just like me and I see that you're created in the image of God just like me and that your whole being moves and rotates around God and I don't look at you as God I look at God as God so therefore I can afford to forgive you and love you because God has forgiven and loved me but the man who do not, does not acknowledge Jesus as Lord is the man who thinks he's God let's set this cup everybody can see that cup he thinks he's the center of the universe well of course he's not he's over here but he thinks everything revolves around him and so therefore since he doesn't acknowledge God as the center of the universe, as Lord, he acknowledges himself. What I want, what I think, what's best for me. You know, me, mine, my four, no more. Uh, and so he looks over here at you, and he sees another man. Uh, not us, I won't use you, I use me. Here's another man that doesn't acknowledge God. And he thinks he's the center of the universe. Well, here we've got two people that think they're the center of the universe. So this one looks over here at this one, the second one, he says, you think you're God? No, I'm God. I'll kill you all. You can't be God. I'm God. I hate you. You know what anger is? Anger is you're killing off someone else. You can't actually kill them. You know, that's what rage is. Rage is I'm the center of the universe. I will judge you and condemn you to hell. And since you can't go over and slit his throat like you want to, you'll have bitterness and anger. And he'll seethe in you and you'll kill him inside you a thousand times. The only thing is, as you're killing him, you're killing yourself. You're releasing into your body, into your system, 
forces that were an, an acid and other uh, uh, things that were never your body was never meant to handle and so it eats a hole in your stomach or it causes your, your digestive stuff to mess up or it causes your heart to have such stress that it overworks itself it causes the veins and the walls to weaken because of the acids and the, and the mucuses and the things that are flooding into your system for one thing when you uh, when adrenaline flows into your stomach flows into your system it is in order that you might have a sudden burst of, of energy and the sudden emergence of strong emotion prepares you for flight or for battle that's what it's for and when you have a sudden strong surge of emotion like anger anger says fight kill and so your stomach I mean your body prepares itself to kill but we're so civilized we can't do that so we don't kill the person we want to kill but all of the facilities in order to give us the strength and energy to kill are there and the body wasn't built to withstand it there's no action to use up all of that so it attacks the body itself so you kill but you don't kill them you kill you physically and this is what happens to us and it brings about physical illness in the body do you see why there would have been no physical illness in the body Adam was created to exist within his perfect environment perfectly he didn't have these things to come against him that would cause him to kill hate mine I won't I think I'm God I think I'm in the center of the universe I've already killed off God in my mind I mean he's no more he's dead as far as I'm concerned I've killed him off and I look over at you what you have crossed my plans you've dared to disturb what I want I'll kill you off too I mean I'm too civilized to do it physically so I'll kill you off in my mind I'll think horrid thoughts of you I'll strike you down in my thoughts in my mind I'll tell you what I think of you I'll have my right oh, I look over at you and I'm God after all I'm in the center of the universe but you have more than me I mean any God who's worth his salt has everything but you have more than me I hate you I kill you off in my mind you can't have more than me I'm God you have to understand that so I kill you off in my mind and envy and lust the desire to possess floods my being and I writhe in my hatred for you because you have threatened me in my godhood you see how we are and a person who is under the control of the passions that flow through a man who thinks he's God is a person who is in bondage to those emotions and we who have been brought into the light by the power of the Holy Spirit and who have seen God is the center of the universe and when you see God and his right to rule automatically you respond with worship I acknowledge you you have right to rule you're in the center of the universe and I take my proper place with the other creatures and I worship you hallelujah I am delivered from the bondage of defending my godhood and so I am free I'm not under the authority of those wild ruling passions I don't have to kill off all of you the rest of you in here so that I can be God so my Godhood won't be threatened I am ruling and reigning over all things I'm not under the passion that's in control of them 
Somebody nod. You do something. You can't remember that. <laughs> so our pity and our compassion rolls out to those who don't know that they're not in the center of the universe. And they don't know that they're killing off everybody else so that they can, won't have their godhood threatened. And they don't understand what forces them, what passions literally roll through their being and how they're washed alone like pebbles in a great big stream and how they are the victim of their anger and their passion and their hope and their, all that they can't, they can't control and they're frantically trying to control it. They are pitiful. They are to be pitied. So we, we as Christians get into that stuff to realize that Yes, the statement is that we as Christians allow ourselves to fall into this, this trap. Remember what the 23rd Psalm says, He restoreth my soul. And Paul says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What we do is we have to suddenly acknowledge, Hey, I see the truth, but our mind and is continually working according to the uh, dictates and the, the things that we learned while we were in this blind state. And the Word of God is that which restores us to our proper sphere of thinking. It dehypnotizes us. It deprograms us from the wrong way of thinking of me and mine, and I'll kill you off in my mind. And as we lend ourselves to the Word of God, our mind is renewed day by day by day. And as our mind is renewed, our whole physical being is renewed. Uh, but the thing is, some people are truly saved. But then, because when persecution arises, for the word's sake, as the Bible, which is the only kind of persecution that there is. That's it. Persecution is never because you're sweet and they're rotten. Persecution is because within you dwells the living, alive person called the Word. And people hate the Word of God. They hate God, and God is in you, and they don't know why they hate you, but they never hate you. And so when persecution arises, we go back to thinking the old way. I'm God. I'm in the center of the universe. I must kill you off in my mind. My husband comes along, and he says something kind of smarty that I don't think gives me the proper respect that as his wife I, and, and help me in this life that I, I deserve to have. And so he says something smart. He may not think anything about it. He may. But then make it, and I turn around and I answer back, and I've got him in his place. You see, once again, my, I've realized that God is the center of the universe. But because of my habitual thinking pattern, once again, I'm defending my Godhood. I have my rights. How dare you speak to me like that? Don't you know I'm God? And so the Scriptures are renewing our minds daily. We're having our minds dehypnotized from this old programmed way of thinking. And when we go back to thinking the way we always did, we call it sin. That's the way it is because it's separate from God. Now, if you have to live with a person who thinks he's the center or she is the center of the universe, you won't take it so personally if you realize they are in bondage. They are in a trap that they cannot extradite themselves. They don't know that they think they're God. They don't know that they think they're God, but they do. And so they are frantically defending their throne. 
And this happens to so many. It, it, it may be Christian people too. They don't have to be lost. They have this power. That's an excellent term. She said that friends of, some friends of hers had split up. I'm saying this for the tape. And that uh, one of them had said to her that it was a continual power struggle. And that's the way most marriages are outside of Jesus. And many inside of Jesus are power struggles. Power struggles. But when you realize that, hey, God is in the center of the universe. And he has said that I am in him. Man, all authority and power is mine. He gave it to me freely. I don't have to defend it. I don't have to prove I'm right. I don't have to have the last word. Having to have the last word is to defend your godhood. I am right. My plans are the best. You best not step in and tear them up. I'll kill you off in my mind. Isn't that what we do? And there's a constant power struggle. One wants to crush the other. That's our idea of power. That's the world's idea of power. But God, who is all power, doesn't work that way. He said, you want to see power? I'll show you power. Remember John in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, one of the most important chapters, the fourth and fifth, oh, in the whole Bible, Marvel. John said he turned, no, John said he saw a man who, there was this, uh, John said there was a book, had seven seals on it. It was a scroll, written inside and out, all over it. I mean, just written on it. And it was sealed with seven seals. When a person wrote a letter or a book or one to send it, they'd put a melt wax and they'd put their signet, their ring on it, and that was their signature. And it was sealed. And he said, nobody could open that book. said it was, nobody was worthy to open that book. And John said when he saw that, he, man, he fell apart at the things. Now John saw some pretty wicked, rough things. I mean, some real boogers. And he said, but when he saw that, he cried greatly. He's this grown man, an old man, and he's sobbing, shaking with the remorse and the sorrow. That was important that that book be opened. Now, we don't know what was in that book. I kind of suspect that whatever it was, maybe it was the revealed will of God for the Whatever it was, it was important. And John broke down. And the, the messenger that was sharing the said, Look, don't cry. He said, Don't cry. There is somebody that's going to open the book. He said, The line of the tribe of Judah. He'll open the book. And John thought, oh, the line. I know what a line is. Wow, it's power. Unspeakable power. Fangs and claws. The king of the jungle. He says, and I turned to look. And I saw a lamb. And not only a lamb, the weakest of creatures, but a dead lamb. I mean, a dead lamb is the weakest of the weak. It's weakness reduplicated and I saw a lamb and it was as if it was slain it had the priest cut under its neck on the juggler vein sacrificially slain the priest would take that lamb's head and turn its head up and expose its throat to the world and with this hand it flashed that juggler vein and he said I saw that lamb and the Greek says as if freshly slain I mean it was still sticky and wet I saw it, but it was alive. It wasn't dead. It was alive. John turned to see power. And he saw weakness. You see, in the natural, rather in the spiritual, lambs are lions. Now, in the natural, lions are lions. Lions are vicious. 
course it ain't. And make you do my do it my way. I will have my way. You will yield to me. But in the spirit, lambs are the power. Lambs who say, I give myself for you. I pour myself out for you. That's power. Do you mean to tell me that somebody who pours himself out on me, who gives himself away, he's in charge of me? I mean, he's power? That's right. The power of God is seen when Jesus hung on the cross. That's power. The one who gives himself away for his enemies. You know what happens when you give yourself away to one who is your enemy? You make him your slave. If I come in the room and I'd say, give me that coat. And you'd say, no indeed not. You're not going to steal from me. I'll just give it to you. You can have it. I'll not allow you to steal from me. I'd be so flabbergasted and flustered. Somebody comes to you and says, I hate you. You didn't do that right. You didn't do that right and I wasn't treated the way I should have been treated. And you say to yourself, I won't let you rule over me. No, indeed not. I'm not going to let you kill me off. You say, brother, you're right. I love you and I'm sorry. I should have done that. I shouldn't have upset you. I should have cared more about you than that. Do you know you have that man under your control? He's in your power. You can't do anything about it. Have you ever had somebody you wanted to fight with them and they wouldn't fight? They have you in their power. Have you in their power. In the spirit, and that's the real world, lambs are lions. Weakness is strength. The power of God is so different from what we think of power. And so we get up to fight the, the devil. And we don't have to fight the devil. He's already been fought and beat. All we have to do is stand in the victory, walk in the victory, walk in the knowledge of it. When I say in the victory, in what was already done to the devil. And so we're going to take the devil and we're going to squash him down to nothing. No, 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 no. That's not the way God works. God takes his enemy and makes them his servants. God didn't annihilate the devil. He just pulled his teeth. He's still here. He's still here. But God has pulled his teeth. And so he comes up to us and he says, Wow! And we say, What you going to do, dumb on me? You know? God has pulled his teeth. He says he has by death destroyed him that had the power of death. Now, destroy doesn't mean annihilate. That's what we think of. We say, man, we just deny. We made him, you know, just a greasy spot. But that didn't what it meant. The word destroy means to render inoperative. So I went out here to my car, and I took a great big steel pipe and just ran it right down through a vital spot. I would have destroyed my car. I mean, the car is still sitting there, but it doesn't have any juice. I have rendered it inoperative. I have destroyed it. And you'd say, well, it's not destroyed. There it is. I see it. I've got eyes. It's sitting right there. And I said, yeah, it's there, okay, but it can't go. And that's what Jesus has done to the devil. He's still here, but he can't go. Because we know. We know he can't go. And so he comes up to us with his roar. Our adversary walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. He comes up to us and he roars to us. And we say, I got the teeth, here they are. I'm keeping them over here in a glass jar on exhibition. What you going to do without these? No choppers. 
And it says we are not ignorant of his devices. We know what he's like. That he tries to convince us that he has power. But we know. He didn't have any juice. He can't go. And so, do we come up with him and say, I'm going to kill the devil in the name of Jesus. I'll get you. No, indeed, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. We don't have any keys. Takes care of an awful lot. Remember I told you at the time and I was, I don't remember just how this happened. I remember what the Lord taught me though. And uh, if the Lord had done said words, he would have said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, well, what? I'm taking authority in this situation. I'm t- taking authority. And he says, uh, how can you take what I have already given you? I told him. I've given you authority. Now walk in it. You don't have to take authority. Of course, I know we just use that terminology. I know what we mean. But really, we don't have to take authority. We just walk in it. Then I talked to you about the dogs a couple of weeks ago. I forget what I told at what place. Then I talked to you about I came up and, and the dogs start barking at me. <laughs> you know? And I would be silly to get down on all fours and bark back. You know, I just have to get stacked. Go away. We have been delivered out of the power of darkness into the power of the kingdom of His dear Son, which is light. And we are a... They laugh at us. The world says, Oh, look at your God. You see, the Romans thought the Christians were fools. They said, Your God, you're worshiping a dead God. Your God, we got him stuck up on a cross. He's dead. You're a bunch of fools. Any God that's worth his salt is going to be powerful, like Zeus. I mean, like Jupiter. Oh, any God that's worth anything roars and he shakes the heavens and everybody trembles when he walks by. Everybody's scared to death of him. And that's how the world thinks of our God. They're scared of him. Oh, my goodness, if I give myself to Jesus, he'd send me to Africa. You know? He'd do rotten things to me. If I ever once gave myself to God, oh, he would just turn me inside out. They're scared of him. They don't know that the lion of the tribe of Judah is a lamb. And you can't fight a lamb. You just can't fight a lamb. A lamb gives himself away to you. What are you going to do with somebody that does that? There's no winning over him. There's no beating him. And so we just love people into submission. We don't fight back. Why don't we fight back? We don't have to. We already won. We already won. We have accepted God's evaluation of our being, our worth. God has said, this is what you are worth. And he has shown us the cross. He's shown us all of creation. He's shown us the true sphere of our being, which is in the spirit, where we are seated before him, ruling and reigning in him. He said, this is what you're worth. You're precious. You're valuable. It says over in Zechariah about four, says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. The Jehovah, thy Elohim, the creative name of God, Jehovah, the love name of God. Jehovah is the God who swore to himself that he would have a people. You are the result not of your looking pitiful to God, but God swore to himself, I will have that one. She belongs to me. Nothing will thwart that, not even her. And your Elohim is the creative name of God. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will joy over you with singing, with crooning. It's the picture of a mama who takes her baby 
Blood baby is so weak. Little puny thing. And yet that's the powerhouse of the whole house. That's the heart throb of the whole house. Everything revolves around the baby. There's bottles and diapers and paraphernalia. The house is torn up. People are coming in and out. You set time schedules. It, it, you, your meals are all torn up. You can't do what you want to do. You can't even sleep at night. That baby is the center of the whole house. And it's a week. Everybody is at the beck and call of that baby. And the mama takes that baby. And she wraps it up in a blanket. And then she kind of throws the other blanket, part of the blanket, around herself. Have you ever done that when you had a baby at night? And she wraps the baby up in herself, really. And then the mama is packing. The baby is in her. She's in the mama's arms, wrapped up next to the mama. And the baby is comforted because he smells mama. And he hears the sound that's familiar to him. The heartbeat is the same rhythm that it's had in the womb all that time. And anybody else can pick up that baby and it won't get, quit fretting. But the minute mama picks it up, it comfort it gets hushed because it smells it, identifies it. That's home. That's comfort. That's where it ought to be. And the mama sings to that baby. Now, she doesn't sing a song like la-dee-da-da. It's not structured music. It doesn't have words. You know what you've done. You have literally crooned to your babies at night. Now, when you were putting them to sleep, and you'd move, and you'd pat them, and you, had, you sang to them. You sang a lullaby to them. And it wasn't a song. It was crooning. It was noises. It was comforting love noises that you made to your baby. That's what this verse of Scripture is. The Lord, the Jehovah, the one who loves you to the degree that he swore to himself he would have you. Jehovah, your Elohim, the one who created you, who out of his mind desired you and made you and said, that's mine. Your Jehovah, your Elohim, is mighty. Oh, he's fierce. He's mighty. He will joy and delight over you with croonings, with music. He wrapped you up in himself. He placed you in Jesus. Put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he delights over you like a mama delights over her baby. She says, oh, that's me. That's me. And she loves herself in the baby. And the baby has power over that mama. It can control her emotions. She's delighted when she sees the baby making greedy noises. I used to love my babies when they nursed. They'd make all those little greedy snacks and noises. And when a baby comes to mama, it's all mouth. It's like a bird. And it's all mouth. And if you touch the baby's cheek, it goes that way. Or if you touch it over here, it's hunting that warmth, that mouth, that satisfaction. And the scripture says, open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. And baby goes for the food. And God calls himself the almighty power. And that word is El Shaddai. And it's mama. It's the God of many breaths. And we attach ourselves to God like a baby attaches itself to mama's breast and we suck him dry. We say, I am utter weakness. I just suck you dry. I just suck all that you are, God. And you never get to the end of all that God is. And we are in utter weakness. Paul said, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Nothing is weaker than a baby, but nothing is stronger. The Lord our God in the midst of us is mighty. And he joys over us with queen. It's sort of us. It's sort of a rhythm out of our spirit that comforts us. I know that I know that I know. I don't feel. I don't experience. I can't explain. No articulation of words to describe it. But there's a clinging in me that says, You're mine. Rest easy. I know it looks awful. You're mine. Nothing can get you. You're mine. Nothing can touch you. You're mine. 
I am not far away. I'm right here. You're in me, and I'm in you. I'm El Shaddai, the God of many breasts. Nothing's going to get you. Relax. Just drink deeply. Open your mouth wide. And we attach ourselves to our God like an appendage. We don't draw from our self-control and our self-effort. We draw from God. Everything about us is limp. We have no power, no might. And we know it. We say, God, if you don't do something, it won't be done. And I just draw on you. And others say, oh, if I just had your faith, if I just had your strength. There's something about you that I, I, I want. I don't have it. There's something about What is it? And you say, oh, but I'm weak. And you say, oh, strong Christian like you? Oh, you're strong in faith. And you just laugh to yourself. You say, but Father, I'm like water poured out. You and I know I'm the biggest ninny that ever lived. But it's the strength of God displayed in you. And he says, you're a tree. You're a tree planted. The wind may come and the hurricanes may blow and it might strip a few leaves off of you and you might even lose a few limbs. But when the storm is all over, you're going to be right there, planted where I put you. Because your taproot runs down for miles and miles and miles and it has found an underground river and its source of life comes from way away from where you are. You are in a desert. There's nothing around you but dry. And yet there you are, flourishing, green. Read over in Jeremiah. I flourish. And so I just put out fruit in my season and everybody else around me is drying up and, and blowing away. And here I am, green, giving life to all the passers, uh, passers-by. Over an oasis in the midst of a desert because I got my roots sunk in Jesus. And I can't be blown away. I can't be starved. I can't be denied. Because my Jehovah, my Elohim, in the midst of me is mighty. Now I got my roots in the river. <gasps> I don't get a little teacup full now and then on Sunday morning. I got my roots stuck in a river. And I'm drawing on it every minute of the day, whether I'm thinking about it or not. And God, in the midst of you, is mighty. I want every one of you to know that today. I don't know what you're facing or what you're going to face. I don't know what you have faced. But I do know this. There is nothing that's going to blow you down. You might think you're going to be blown down. And you may not be able to hang on to the river. But your roots are in it. And the river holds on to you. God has you. You don't have God. <laughs> don't kid yourself. God has you. He's got you wrapped up in himself. And nothing is going to touch you. It may look like it is. It may look like there's something with a hairy finger just about to crook itself around you. Forget it. It's just a booger. And God is not going to lose you. Jesus said, All that the Father gave me are mine. They come to me. And I'll lose nothing. Nothing means nothing. You want to get away from God? Try. People who rebel and try to run from God, wind up in his immediate presence. Because he just lets the body fall off. He just takes it off. You tired of living? Rebel against God. You do that, you know. There is nothing. The more I read the scriptures, the firmer I am established in this. There's some scriptures that I don't understand that puzzle me. But this I know. Everything that belongs to God, God keeps. 
nothing and no one takes anything from God. Nothing and no one. Now I'll grant you there's some things that puzzle me. But every time I come back to it, I come to that. I lie down. The scripture said, Blessed is he that dwelleth under the shadow of the Almighty. I lay down in the shadow of El Shaddai. That's what Almighty means. I lay down in his shadow. And I'm refreshed. I'm cool. You know, we say, he's cool. The kids talk about being cool. And we're cool. No sweat. You know, that's why there's no sweat, because we're ever in the shade. I have everything I need. I have life. And it looks dry around me. People say, my goodness, it's terrible. It's not terrible because we belong to the Most High and what He has, He keeps. Remember, I've talked about the, 20, about the parable about the, um, uh, the shepherd that goes off to find the lost sheep, you know? And have we talked about that before here? And he didn't go out because he felt sorry for the sheep. He went out because it was his sheep. It belonged to him. He had investment in it. It was his possession. The woman that lost the coins, they were her coins. She worked all night long, the house cleaned and swept and got everything because it was her coin. She wanted it. belonged to her. Well, now God says, you belong to me. I created you for my glory. I chose you before the foundation of the world. You will be mine. And that's not our lesson. What are we doing? What are we doing? Oh, well. I don't want to teach you the lesson. I really don't. (laughs) I don't want to do the lesson. Let's don't. Um, We will next week. It's good. I keep asking, we're not going anyplace, are we? We're <laughs> in a big hurry. Here. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's what I had planned to. Would you like me to go into that? Or would you rather us, um, are you interested in that? Um, okay, well, we'll talk about it a little bit. Turn, if you will, into Genesis. I think we are in about the, let's see now, uh, look in the 10th chapter. Particularly at verse 6, And the sons of Ham were Cush and Mezram and Put and Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sabteca, mercy. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan, eighth verse. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He, Nimrod, became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Achad, and County, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and those others. Mm-hmm. Here we have a history, very short and concise, about a man that we have to go to contemporary history and archaeology to find out more about. 
last week we talked about Nimrod and about uh, his wife Semiramis who after the death of Nimrod established herself as the mother goddess of Babylon and, and her son that was born after Nimrod died she named Tammuz and claimed that he was the reincarnation of Nimrod that Nimrod was really God and had become the son so they worshipped Nimrod as the sun god and Tammuz was his son and actually Tammuz was the husband of his mother they said you get that? Tamrod was supposed to really be Nimrod that was married to Semiramis. And uh, so from Babylon, where everybody knew, remember, what God had promised to Eve, that the seed, the woman's seed, would crush the head of the serpent's seed. Or crush the head of the serpent, rather. Uh, remember that? So all of, all of people knew about the seed that was promised, and that seed is Jesus that was promised. And all of them knew about it. And yet we have here people who did not like to acknowledge God. And the name Nimrod means let us rebel. It's a word that has rebellion. And against the Lord, uh, before the Lord, it has the idea against. It told his nature and his attitude. And uh, here Semiramis declared Nimrod as God. He was a mighty hunter, it said. He was a mighty provider. And when life was probably ticklish at its best, he was able to gather together people into a kingdom. Now, God had said, just like he told Adam and Eve, he told Noah for he and his sons to go forth and to multiply and replenish the earth. And yet they didn't do that. They gathered this particular branch, the sons of Ham, gathered themselves up into a kingdom, into cities, and built cities to dwell together. And we remember Canaan. Remember Ham, who came and found his father naked and laughed about it and went and told his brothers? And remember that fact that his son was Canaan, and Canaan's son was Cush, and Cush's son was Nimrod. And you see the, the attitude from father to son that runs on down through them. And Nimrod married this one woman, Semiramis, who exploited the fact that Nimrod was a great hunter, and after his death built up worship around it. In fact, she said, yes, Nimrod was really God. And the seed that he promised to our father and mother, Adam and Eve, is about to be born in my body. I am the woman, and this child is the seed. Now, Semiramis was worshipped by the Babylonians and all eastern nations because when God came down and confused the language at Babylon, from that they went out and informed all the nations of the earth. So they all knew from uh, their ancestor Adam and Eve about the seed that was coming and they all knew that Semiramis had claimed to be the mother goddess the woman that that seed came from and that the seed was Tammuz uh, the deliverer who was really Nimrod incarnated you allow you with me? Uh-huh. in uh, Genesis chapter 10 this I said we cannot, this is not in the Bible. We have to find this from archaeological uh, discoveries and from secular history. What I'm talking about today comes just from secular history. It's just the briefest mention of it in the Bible. But we can go and read the history of nations and find out and trace it back down and see what came of it. So what we're talking about today is not dependent on what is said in the Bible. The Bible is not a book about everything. It's just a book about one family, and it mentions other things only as they have relationship to that one family, which Jesus Christ is the head of. So here we're looking into secular history and we're finding out according to what man has discovered from writings, from uh, 
the past and archaeological discoveries, these things we find. And you can go to your history book, you can go to your encyclopedias and find out what I'm telling you here. But we find out, and of course the root of it is Nimrod. This is, a, this is not something that you just find in the Bible, this is something that you find, period. And we find the name of the man that started out and began this, was the head of it, was Nimrod, his wife of Semiramis. Now, uh, uh, she uh, received all of her glory and her deification through her son. She didn't just out and out claim it herself. She claimed it through her son. But her son is always shown as a child in her arms or at her feet. It's shown in the Chinese culture, Japanese culture, in all uh, Oriental and Eastern cultures. The uh, uh, Egyptian culture, she's called Isis, and her son is called Horus. And... Uh, he is uh, also called Bacchus. The creative, the classical writers, uh, all called Tamas in the uh, Greek and the Roman classical writers called him Bacchus. And of course, he was the god of sensuality. It's the same youngin of Semiramis, born of an illicit relationship after Nimrod died, that she turned to her advantage. Anytime you see Bacchus, Bacchus always had a cup in his hand. And he also always had an ivy wreath around him, or ivy was always associated with the worship of Bacchus. And they threw great orgies to celebrate this god. And he was the very same god called Tamaz, born to Semiramis, wife of Nimrod. And uh, they would, uh, he was called the lamented one. Read over in Ezekiel how the women were weeping for Tamaz. In the, in, you know, in the soldiers of the year when it looked like winter had killed everything off and then they would weep and say oh Tamar is dead and the sun was at its lowest point and, and they would weep and moan and lament for Tamar and then when spring began to come and the leaves began to shoot out little green things they'd have this marvelous celebration oh Tamar has come back to life and we call it Easter it was the celebration that the god Tamar was coming back to life now you will understand the scripture says when you worship an idol, you're worshiping demons. Understand that? Really, you know, you're worshiping an idol, but behind that idol is the demon force that manipulates and uses that worship that you offer. Now, if you, uh, ISIS, they have a cartoon about ISIS on Saturday morning. ISIS is still here. There's no dead demons. They're spirits and they never see. Every demon alive was solved, the Son of God crucified, and those same, same demons are alive today. The demon behind that name Isis is the same demon that was behind it when they worshipped her in Egypt. And, uh, Bacchus, of course. Como, Bacchus, all of the others. There's that demon. They are demons. And here is Bacchus with his cup. And you see what, how, how, how they say, oh, well, that's just my thought. Semiramis was known as Venus by the uh, Greeks, I believe. The Scandinavians called Nimrod Odin. The Greeks called him Orion or Apollo. And you see Apollo so many times he's destroying, he's shown destroying a serpent or arm wrestling with a serpent. So you see, knowing that the woman was, uh, the seed of the woman was to come and destroy the serpent, they said, and this is who it is, it's Nimrod. And, and all these names are traced back, they are the names in the different cultures of that same one God. These cultures trace all their roots back to Babylon, you see. And they all knew it. 
And all of that is involving, and you say, well, that's just mythology. There's nothing to it. Yes, I know it's not true. You and I know it. But the demon behind it is true, and it was the alternative religion. It says, we don't like God. We'll kill him off, and we'll have our own God. It's Nimrod. He's God. His wife's son is Jesus, though. It's the deliverer. He's the Messiah. So we don't want God and what God says. We'll have our own. The Scripture says, look at Psalms 2. Psalms 2 and about the 8th verse, I believe. Let's see. No. Psalms 2 verse 3. Oh, verse 2. The kings of... Psalms 2 verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Moses stepped out of the ark, built an altar, and worshipped. And the covenant of God with man is established. The covenant. that A covenant is where God binds himself to us. He obligates himself to us. He says, I take you into myself, and I give you myself. We are bound together. We are bound together. Uh, matrimony is the closest we have to it, but that's not strong enough. We are bound to one another. And men, these men said, let us break God's cords that hold us. We won't have his covenant. We won't recognize him. We don't want him as God. We'd rather have it our own way. Let's break his bands asunder. And so began paganism. And it all has its roots right here. Now also, the um, uh, Venus in the, was the mother of Cupid, the little winged creature. Now, Nimrod is shown in an Assyrian culture as a lion with the head of a man, and he's a great winged creature. He's got huge wings that come up. They're stylized. Remember seeing pictures of them, the Assyrian gods, in this uh, uh, Sennacherib, I believe it was Sennacherib, or one of the Assyrian uh, palaces that had been uncovered, and you see the great lion with the man's head and the great big wings that come up behind him. Okay, well, it kind of got over here to the Greeks and the Romans. They said it was Cupid. He was the son uh, of Venus. And Venus, of course, we know is Semiramis. And Cupid is Tammuz, the winged one. And not only that, but Adonis was also spoken of as uh, the seed, the one that comes. You see the horrid corruption? It says here that, uh, let's see, I put down uh, uh, Bacchus' name also is uh, Kisos. And uh he, you see him in one picture, and you go to the encyclopedia, and you see Bacchus, and he's got the Greek classical robe, and he's standing here with a cup in his hand, and the cup, and over here he's got a branch. It looks like a very stylized branch that he's carrying, and there's no leaves on it, but he's carrying it. And the cup traces the word, uh, or cup traces its roots back to the word kush. And so what the hieroglyphic is saying here is Nimrod, Reborn again is Tammuz, but it really is Nimrod, and he is the son of Cush, the cup there, and he is the branch of cup. He is the descendant, and yet we see what a corruption this is. Jesus is spoken of as the branch. He's spoken of as the root out of dry ground, and he is the son of the Father. And uh, this is the picture of Bacchus. Yes. Is Cush the son of Ham? Mm-hmm. I mean, I want. And Ham's the son of Noah. Noah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um. 
in Tahiti, uh, some of the Polynesian areas, there is uh, a missionary by the name of John Williams brought back uh, the tale. that he they have a uh, um, a legacy or a legend among the uh, Tahitians, and they told the story about once when the world, uh, the earth, the the heavens were so close to the earth that you had to, men had to crawl. And one who they called the Deliverer, they called him the Elevator of the Heavens, came along and he exerted his mighty strength and he lifted up the heavens to about four feet, the height of one of their bushes, and there's a name they have for it. And then he rested and got his strength and he exerted his mighty strength and he lifted up the heavens as high as a tree. And then he exerted his strength again and he lifted up the heavens up to the mountaintop. And they called him the Elevator of the Heavens. Now, when you look at this tale and you begin to investigate it, you see where it came from. It all came from one root. At one time, men were bound with the cords of a covenant with God. I'll go back to Noah. And men, because they rebelled against this covenant, felt like they were tried to crawl before God. They had to be subjected to God. They crawled. And you see how the thing came about? And so then they said, uh, let's break, break his bands asunder. And so we have here what in classical culture became Atlas, holding up the world on his shoulders. Atlas is none other than Tammuz, who is none other than the reincarnation of Nimrod, which was the absolute paganistic rebellion against God and all of his love. See how important it is? These things are not just cute little ditties that some dumb people believe. It had roots in reality. It rooted itself in a rebellion against God himself. I had put down uh, something else I wanted to tell you about. Um, oh, the Buddhas in, uh, in China many times have Negro features. And there, came, there is, of course, the, uh, the traditional view of history that uh, Kush was a black man. He was an Ethiopian, which nobody knows, you know, maybe, may not. And to tell you the truth, you see, color that has been so important in this country was not important then. Color didn't mean anything. By the way, let me stop here to say Jesus wasn't white. Would you allow me to say that? The pictures you see of him as fair Anglo-Saxon with blue eyes is a monument to arrogant ignorance. He wasn't black either. He was probably a rich, toasty, almond, chocolatey brown with his skin burnt brown by the sun. And he probably had dark brown or dark hair, which is probably uh, worn in a style that was probably cut over the shoulders, and it came to a little point about so, and it had a long thing here, which was, you know, they were not to trim the corners of their, and he had a beard, by the way. People were so prejudiced against styles of hair, wearing both long and short and otherwise. And Paul said it's a shame for a man to wear long hair, and he did because a Nazarite wore long hair. It was to indicate I have separated myself unto God. I have put myself under submission to God. Hair is a woman's glory. It is a mark of her submission. And back then to have a woman's haircut was to show her shame. The shade was called it. The Bible said it was shaved. She wasn't bald headed. It was just cut about like mine. To cut her hair short meant that that's a rebellious woman. Boy, we have shamed her. She is a nothing. A nothing. She's not even feminine. She doesn't have any, any femininity at all. She's a nothing. But for a man to have long hair indicated a shame because it had, he had decided to put himself under a vow to God and to submit himself to God, it was a sign of his submission. 
So Paul said, for a man to wear long hair is a shame. He didn't mean it was his a shame, kiss, kiss, kiss. He meant it's a real shame. It's the fact that he has said, I am I'm not a man even. I don't stand as authority during this particular time I set my side, myself aside for. I submit to God. And I refuse myself the pleasures that are my natural rights. He didn't drink wine. He didn't eat grapes. He didn't even eat the little cakes that they made with the dried pulp of the grape after they had uh, made the wine. Wine is a sensuous thing that brings heart gladness to the heart and it puts you under the control of it. And he said, I'm under the control of no one but God. I don't even take my authority as a man to do what I want. I wear my hair long and I just look like a booger. I won't even fix myself up. And he, he wasn't able to trim it or anything. And John the Baptist, remember, was a Nazarite from his mother's womb. He was a boogery-looking fellow. And when he came baptizing and preaching repentance, he was enough to attract attention. He looked like a three-ring circus walking down the road. And folks left town to go out and hear him. And uh, he didn't, you know, uh, wear a Bill Bass uh, glass suit. He wore uh, skins. You know, he made his own clothes. It's just like today it would be like he, he made homespun or something. He fellow made his own clothes out of whatever was available. And he didn't pay much attention to what he ate. He ate what was healthy farm and enough that he could get naturally and it didn't have to cost him a whole bunch. Locusts and wild honey. Yuck. Yes, indeed. But he ate what was it? Was, locusts was considered a luxury there and it was available. So anyway, this was a Nazarite. And so uh, a Nazarite, can you think of one other Nazarite in the Bible? The vow of the Nazarite? Samson was a Nazarite from his mother's womb too, remember. And remember when uh, he uh, told Delilah, kept saying, you know, if you love... Sam- Samson had a problem. He had the same problem David had. He loved the girl. Yeah, he appreciated a fine figure of a woman. And uh, right now, man, is a trouble. And so uh, Samson, when Delilah said, if you, if you love me, I heard a fellow say, you can hear the whine of her voice coming through the scriptures. If you really love me. You know, if you don't love me. You'd tell me the secret of your strength. So just to please her, he said, you know, if you'd tie me, tie me with this, that, and the other, and I couldn't get loose. And finally he broke down and he told her. And she cut his hair off. And which I always thought, well, why would he sprinkle it? Because he got his hair cut. You know, it's like it would have done the fellow some good <laughs> in getting him a haircut. But the reason he lost his strength is when he was weak, remember long hair was a shame. It was a sign of weakness. I submit myself to God. I am utterly weak. I give myself to God. When he was weak, he was strong. Now, every picture you've ever seen of Samson is when he's a great, big, burly, hunky fellow with muscles on muscles, and that is also ignorant. Samson was a, a lamb. He was a little bitty skinny thing. He was a runt. You know, the Jewish people were very short and small people anyway, and kind of delicately made. And he was a runt. And that's what made it so amazing. I mean, he was a runt, and yet he would shake himself. When the Spirit of the Lord would come on him, he'd tear down city walls, he'd rip open people, he'd kill them, he'd tear up lines. He was a punk. Except that he was a little old bitty thing. Wasn't nothing to him. When he was weak, he was strong. But when he cut off the sign or the token of his weakness, he was no longer strong. Isn't that interesting? The Scripture says when we're weak, we're strong. Believe me, in heaven, lions are lambs. And a lot of heaven's lions are down here on earth, and the earthlings think we're lambs. They just don't know. They don't know the secret of real strength is to be lamb-like. And a lamb knows the voice of his shepherd. He says, 
mess with me. Don't do it. It's bad news. And the world says, you've got to be kidding. There's nothing to you. You weak thing, wailing and moaning and talking about this Jesus stuff. You're a marshmallow. You're a jelly. You're nothing to you. You don't have any strength at all. We say, oh, you just don't know. You just don't know. And we say, yeah, I'm weak. But when I'm weak, I'm strong. You just don't know it. I'm another Samson. I'm another Samson. I'm a puny little old runt. To look at me, you wouldn't think there's nothing to me. You could blow me and blow me away. Try. <laughs> Try. <laughs> try it, Satan. Just try. See what you get. Uh, well, I'm doing terrible today. What was I talking about? Oh, that's the man that's supposed to be black. Yeah. Why do you think, um, or do you think, they, they um, picture the Lord white and the blue eyes, you know, if he wasn't that like, how does that Well, because this... I watched Archie Bunker last night. Y'all ever see Archie Bunker? I'm sure you're ashamed of me, but I love Archie. He is the antithesis of the natural man. He really is. And he had this black fellow next door visiting with him, and they were arguing about God, and he was saying God was white. He says, well, you know, uh, you fellas, this fellow said, well, take away the black man, and and you poor whites don't have anything left. I mean, you take us out of sports, you take us out of the military, you take us out of all this. And Archie says, well, it doesn't matter. We got God. (laughs) You know, (laughs) he's white. I think the reason is it's just pure arrogance. We suppose that since God is wonderful, he must look like me because I am terrific. And you notice all the biblical scenes that are pictured by the great painters are pictured in their own contemporary surroundings. So it's pure arrogance. That's all it is. Of course. He would have favored his mom. Just like he favored his dad. You know? Yeah. He would have favored his mom. He probably looked a lot like her. And, of course, he uh, lived a great deal in the outdoors. He was a very healthy, swarthy man. He was, his skin was very sunburned. It was naturally very dark and olive anyway. And then to be so much in the sun, it was really bad. And he looked like an ordinary Joe. You wouldn't have picked him out in a crowd for nothing. You'd pass him right by. I heard a fellow say the most significant thing about the first 30 years of the life of Jesus is that there was nothing significant about it. There was nothing worth why, why didn't Why don't we know anything about the early life of Jesus? There wasn't anything that worth telling. He just lived an everyday, ordinary life, just, you know, like anybody else. And so, uh, so it was with, uh, I'm talking about these pictures and things, pictures naturally assume that Jesus looked like us. Yeah, you see, here he is. Uh, let's see. It says, um, oh yeah, this you can read this later. This is a description of Jesus that is written by Tiberius, uh, rather uh, Publius Lentulus, not like soup, uh, <laughs> <laughs> governor of Judea. Let's see, uh, and which is supposed to be it's supposed authentic. Let's read it. There lives at this time in Judea a man of singular virtue whose name is Jesus Christ. Now, right away, that makes you wonder for him to call him Jesus Christ because uh, unless he's got it by word of mouth because Christ was his uh, 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 anointed name. It means the anointed. It was a Jewish word. Uh, Jesus is uh, a Hebrew for the, I mean, Greek for the Hebrew Joshua of which Hosea is also a diminutive form. It said um, his name is Jesus Christ and no Jew would call Jesus Jesus Christ because Christ is the anointed, the Messiah, the coming one, and they wouldn't fix the calling Christ. And no Jew would call us Christians. That was a Gentile name we were given. It was a slur. 
it was, uh, if, if I wanted to say you were my slave, and I hate to say the slaves of Liz, so-and-so the slaves of Liz, I'd say the Lizianian. Lizianian, that awful. But onion meant the slaves of. And here was all these people who kept saying they were the slaves that somebody called Christ, so they called us the Christianians, or the Christians. And it was a slur. There they are, the slaves of Christ. You know, I mean, nobody is anything as a slave. They're the Christianians. They're the Christians. It was a derogatory term, and no Jew would give it to us. We called ourselves the people of the way. That was the name Christians gave themselves. And the way, of course, we know, every Jew knew what that was. That was the way into the Holy of Holies. And the way was through the veil, and only the high priest could go once a year. And we are the people of the way. It's wide open to us. We go in and out in fine pasture. We fellowship in and out. We don't have to wait for anybody to go in for us. We are the people of the way. Jesus Christ, whom the barbarians esteem as a prophet, but his followers love and adore him as the offspring of the immortal God. He calls back the dead from the grave and heals all sorts of diseases with a word or a touch. He's a tall man and well-shaped, of an amiable and reverend aspect. His hair is of a color that can hardly be matched. Now, you see, I don't agree with this stuff. I really don't. The scripture said there was nothing about him that we should desire. And listen to this. You know, he says he's a hair of a rich chestnut, full right, fallen waves about his shoulders. I mean, a bunch of women would have desired that. And burn the scripture. His forehead high, large, and imposing. His cheeks without spot of wrinkle. Beautiful with a lovely red, his nose and mouth formed with exquisite symmetry, beard thick and of a color. The war I get the less I like it. That's not him. That's not him. He probably had a war right on the end. You know, right, right there. It, it, yeah, you know, he was a plain guy. I mean, you know, he was just a regular fellow. I don't think he was good looking. I really don't. I mean, I may think he's good looking and you might. But, I mean, he's not Hollywood. I don't think he was Hollywood good looking. Otherwise, he would have attracted attention. He would have been invited to be some wealthy Roman lady's consort. Yeah, he, he, I, don't, I don't think that he was particularly uh, good looking. I think he's writing about what he was told, all right. I think that's what he was told. And I think he was told by somebody who was uh, out doing real good PR for the Lord, <laughs> thinking that he was, but I don't think he looked like that. I mean, he may have, but I mean, all the, the rich yeah, words. Like David, him long hair, hair, yeah. Was, uh-huh. Like yeah, they said it in the scripture. David was a good looking man. He was redheaded, you know. Which uh, uh, um, Auburn red red tinted red headed fellow said he was fair skinned, had a ruddy complexion, had rosy cheeks, and he was uh, he loved the girls too. <laughs> he was rich. <laughs> oh, they liked it. They wrote songs about him. Yeah, they liked David. So anyway, that you know it may or may not be. It's open for speculation. He'd be good looking to us no matter what he looked like. And he certainly is good looking now. When all his his, his glory. Uh, but when he was here on earth, he just looked like a, a guy, an ordinary fellow. Uh, the scripture said there was nothing about him that we would desire. He didn't even speak particularly. Uh, they, they listened to him. They'd say, oh, did you hear the gracious words that came out of his mouth? That boy hadn't been to college. I mean, he doesn't. He's not educated. Isn't this the carpenter's son? You have to sympathize with those people because after all, what if it were us? That, have you heard the news? No, what? Well, you know Jesus, you know, Mary and Joseph's boy that grew up with our kids. You know, he graduated from high school with your boy, you know. You know, the one, the carpenter, he put in a new kitchen for me last week. You know him. He thinks he's God. Can't you just hear the buzzing around the town? Bless, it's a shame. Well, you know, there always has been a doubt about that family. 
I mean, you know, I counted back, and there is no way. Now, there's always been something peculiar about them. I can really sympathize with That's why the Scripture says, No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Because it had to be revealed by the Spirit of God that he was the Lord. And no Jew would call him Lord because that was Jehovah and they knew him. Unless the Spirit of God opened their minds. And, and it's the same today. Don't be impatient with a sinner. A person who's a rotten person who shakes his fist in God's face and thinks he's the center of the universe. He can't say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No man comes to the Father except the Spirit drawing. And his mind is blinded so he can't see the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. That's good. I'm so glad I made full circle. Oh, I, was, I said that he's shown as with uh, with uh, Negroid features, as though he has. And of course, that comes back from the traditional fact that uh, Ham, I mean, uh, Cush was said to be black or have large features or be from Ethiopia, from that didn't necessarily have to be black. And from that comes all the long tales about the devil being a black man with horns. And you see all of these inscriptions and these. Uh, statues that are made, many of them have horns. Horns stood for power and authority. And uh, uh, much of it, the god Horus has a, a human body and a jackal head. I mean, he was a, a hunter, a jackal. He could hunt. Nothing could get away from him. Nimrod was a great hunter. It's the corrupted manifestation through those people of Nimrod. And the world is full of the worship of Nimrod, the alternative to God. That which is presented by Satan as the alternative of God. It has its root in paganism. Paganism is satanic. It is that which refuses to acknowledge God. It says, I'll kill off God and I'll be God. I'll make God like I like. Also, Nimrod is portrayed as a lion or a calf. Why a calf? I don't know. But Tamaz, the son of uh, Semiramis and Timur, is portrayed as a calf. Remember when the Hebrews built him a golden calf? Mm-hmm. A young bull is what it was. It wasn't just a little moo cow. It was a young bull. Strong. The symbol of life. Baal was worshipped. And the Asherah, which is the female, the wife of Baal, which is Semiramis, you see. And Baal was Tamaz, or Nimrod. And uh, Semiramis was the wife's mother. And uh, she was worshipped as the Asheroth, a female deity that had a whole row of breasts. And uh, many times you'll come across these deities, pictures of them that have been excavated, and the uh, reproductive areas, like uh, 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 there'd be a block, there's nothing to them. And the only thing that you can really tell is the sexual parts of the body, the breasts and down between the legs. That is just stands out. Or the hips will be big, hips and all be huge breasts. And, you know, she's the goddess of fertility. And they didn't bother with the face. And it may just be a blob up there. It's Semiramis. That's what it is. And it all has its roots back in paganism. And, um, let's see, something else I was thinking strike of. Um, if you're interested in pursuing this, you can do so with very little effort. But it'll, it'll interest you. Now, this is what God is delivering us from. It's called religion. The beginning of religion was at Nimrod, Semiramis, Tamaz, and Babylon. And God is calling out a people that are delivered from religion. And I don't care where you go to church, you got it. It's called religion. God it is. In its gross form, 
are its subtle forms. It's called religion. And God is calling a people out that will separate themselves to him. No more holy places. We know that since Jesus tore the veil between uh, the veil in, in the uh, temple of the, between the holy place and the holy of holies. No more holy places. No more holy pe- people. No people. No one person is more holy than another. We are all priests and kings to the Most High God. God is calling out a people that will be joined together, not in a place, but in the spirit. In the spirit, diverse, different. We're so different. We're like a huge field full of wildflowers. We're so different. And yet we're so alike. We have the same spirit. We're all flowers. A field of flowers, and they have all kinds of flowers that are different, but they're all flowers. They all are the same spirit. And that's us. We're all different. And it would be just as foolish to demand that God only have marigolds as it to demand that he only has morning glories. You can't demand that he only has Catholics, and you can't demand that he only has Baptists. And you can't demand that anybody who's not come over here and be with us. God sets where he wants and God is calling out a people from religion and those are names of religions religions the worship of God is not religion that you're not religious no religious people are people who are under bondage to a system of do's and don'ts they will please God by merit they will do it that's why religious people love the Ten Commandments why, even if you fail, at least you have comfort in knowing that you tried by your self-effort. But with God, Christianity is a lie. Christianity is the antithesis to religion. Religion and, and Christianity is just like saying fire and water. They're the exact like black and white, light and darkness. They're the exact opposite in nature. You are not religious. And it always irks me to pieces to people say, oh, you're so religious. No, I just, you gotta be kidding. Yeah, you know, that, that means doing it, being careful, having set time. But we aren't religious people. We are people who have been loosed from the bondages of religion, and we are in life. We are living. We may do some of the same things, or go some of the places we used to go, but it's not because we are doing it in order to please, it's because it's our joy and our delight. And anytime we want to quit, we can, and God won't be upset with us. Do you know God is not impressed with the fact that you go to church? God didn't say go to church every Sunday. Doesn't matter what day. Paul said if a man keeps the day, he keeps it to the Lord. If he doesn't keep that day, he doesn't keep it to the Lord. If he eats that, he eats it to the Lord. If he doesn't eat it, he doesn't eat it to the Lord. Leave that fella alone. You speak around your own back door. You know, you, you decide what you're going to do. Leave him alone. Because what you do or don't do is no longer important. Now, God has done something. He has made us and complete and declared us righteous. Now, if you want to go on church on Sunday, hallelujah. If you don't want to, have church by yourself on Wednesday. Praise God. You, want to, you see, first you have to be delivered from going to church. And then you can be delivered into going to church. You can go when you want. You, know, you can go and you can say, hallelujah, you're going to get to go and praise God with the saints. I love it. But then, if the Spirit of the Lord so moves you, you may say, Lord, I'm going to stay home today. Just, I've been busy all week. Just you and me. We're going to get the Bible. We're going, to, we're going to have church together today. Or you may say, Lord, we're going to have, this is Wednesday. Let's have church. Or you may be washing the dishes, having church. You're having church everywhere you go. Church is where you are. No more holy places. This is a church. Because the church is sitting right here in a big circle. We're all together. The church is represented here. The body of believers, living stones. And this place is holy. 
But when, if everybody leaves and, and she goes off and plays, this is just a house. The minute, the minute she comes back in here, it's holy. That's a holy couch. It won't be holy when she gets off of it until somebody else holy sits on it. You are holy. And where you are is a holy place. And God is not more one present one place than He is another. We were talking about this yesterday. God fills everything with Himself. My arm is never more my arm than it's my arm. If it was more my arm now than it was ten minutes ago, it wasn't my arm ten minutes ago. God is never more present at one time than He is the other. And we speak so incorrectly. We say, oh God, let your presence come down. Well, where have you been? He's been right here. He fills everything with Himself. And I know what we mean. It's term- we're limited with language, but it's just terminology. We need to understand, even when we say it, that's not the way it is. And we say, oh, God was with us the other day. We had a meeting and the Spirit was present. Well, of course He was. Where else was He going to be? He fills all things with Himself. What we mean is we were more aware of it. Yeah, that's what we mean. We don't mean He was there. We mean we were aware of His being there. <laughs> Oh, God, open my eyes and let me see His presence. Oh, and of course, He's always there. Next time you go take a bath, remember, He's there. Peek-a-boo. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what the church is. This is what Christianity is. This isn't religion, you see. Religion has a system, and it has people who are in charge of the truth. And they will go without to those under them little bit at a time little bit at a time and we have to go to them so that they can bless us by their wisdom and their presence and we have to oh if I could just get sister so and so to pray for me it would be so much better you know sister so and so what does sister so and so do she's just agreeing with you that the power of God is going to do what God's going to do anyway no holy people I mean one person is as holy as the other one place is as holy as the other. The only thing that makes it holy is the presence of the Holy One. And sinners spend all their life running from God. All their life. They don't want to go to heaven. Now, they may want to go to heaven with their identification. And if you sit down and ask them what heaven is, they say, well, that's do what I want to do and, and no more uh, restraints and I can have my own way. Well, I want you to know that that's not heaven. That's hell. That's it. The presence of God is what makes heaven to us. But the presence of God is what makes hell to the sinner. That's heavy, heavy stuff, but that's true. The presence, you think a sinner wants to go to heaven? He's been running away from God all his life. What's he want to do in heaven? He'd be miserable in heaven. He, that's why he doesn't want to be where you're going. Man, he wants to stay away from you anyway. You make him uncomfortable. God really makes him miserable. He's a denizen of the darkness. Remember I talked about roaches? That's a lovely subject. You go into a dank, dark place and you, there is the, the roach and he's happy. He's, a, he's, a, he's a, a, a liver in darkness. He loves it. It is his, it is his joy, his delight. He, it is his being. And you get, you're miserable. It's dark and it's dank and you think, oh, I've got to have light. I feel like I'm going to suffocate. You open the, the door and light floods in and to you that's heaven. You say, oh, good, I can breathe. But to the roach, it's hell. It tortures him. The presence of light tortures him. The presence of light delights you. That's the picture between the born again and the lost. The presence of God is light to us. It delights us. We revel in it. But the presence of God is torture to the sinner because he is a creature of darkness and it torments him. I don't know where heaven is and where hell is. I have my own ideas. 
But wherever it is, hell is not the place where the devil finally has his way. Hell is hell to the devil. If, if hell is the place where the devil has his way, then he finally won. There was one corner of the universe that he never did get, that God never got, and that's the... You know, no, 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 no. Yeah, you hear people tell you, people aren't going to go to hell and sit on the griddle and swap jokes. Forget that. No, no, no. The presence and the, of God is what makes hell hell, and hell is hell for the devil. It talks about hell as being a lake of fire. What's a lake of fire? What do you, what do you hear about? What, what do you associate fire with in the scripture? What is fire? That's it. God is a consuming fire. And for a creature of the darkness who loves the darkness and is tortured by the light to be forever in the presence of eternal life, I don't know what's going over here, but we're going to have to get them to share. (laughs) (laughs) Evidently, whatever hell is, know this, it's filled with the presence of God. And that's why it's hell. Because everybody that's there hates the presence of God. The light tortures them. It's called a lake of fire. Our God is a consuming fire. We delight in it. The shimmering presence of God showed itself in like a big cloud in the wilderness. And at nighttime it was like fire. And when God, uh, and it says they, they burn day and night. Jesus said the smoke of their torment. They burn, but they're never consumed. Where did you hear about something like that? Burning, but never consuming. Remember when Moses met the presence of God in the burning bush and the bush burned but it wasn't consumed? All of us are spirits and a spirit cannot be consumed. If all hell is is literal fire, it'd burn up my body in that five minutes and I'll be over. But it's not. It's a place that is a place of the presence of God. I think that's what the fire is. And it burns continually. Hell is where God isn't. No, so where God is. Now you're saying God is in hell? I'm saying hell is in God. Whatever hell is, and I don't know what hell is. About the rich man and, and Lazarus? Uh huh. Yeah. He could see Lazarus in heaven, but he couldn't see him in hell. No, it said he could see them, and they could see each other, but they couldn't cross over. They couldn't. They couldn't cross over, and that's picture language telling us about wherever this place is. I don't know, but it's fire, and fire. Our God is a consuming fire. It's a place where spirits live, and evidently, our physical fire is the closest that our minds can conceive of it. The most horrible thing we can think of is physical fire being burned and burned. That would be horrible. And so, he, the Bible talks to us continually about things that our mind can understand in picture language. And in the picture language, the best we can come to is fire. But remember this, we're talking about spirit beings, a being that will never cease to be. And literal fire would not harm a spirit. It would harm a body, but it wouldn't harm a spirit. It wouldn't touch it. But Because that's all we can understand. We've got, we've got to have words to communicate, and all we know is what's physical and literal. But God doesn't have, a spirit does not have, Jesus said a spirit doesn't have flesh and blood like you see me. Remember, he said, I'm not a ghost. A spirit doesn't have flesh and blood. God is a spirit. Now, the, uh, God is personified to us in Jesus. Jesus is the only uh, area of the Godhead that has a body. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now understand, I'm, uh, 
understand it. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are all eternal beings. That's right. Like, Everyone. That's right. But it's eternal death. It's eternally dying. Mm-hmm. It's called death, where mm-hmm. ours is called it's living. And notice this. People say, well, how could I enjoy heaven if somebody I and my loved ones were in hell? And the devil tortures people with this. Understand this. We don't understand now. Our minds are just orientated to time, place, structure. And when the Bible says that when the uh, beast and the dragon and the uh, false prophet, which are the picture language personification of evil in all its forms, when they were cast into the fi- uh, bottomless pit or into the lake of fire with all those that followed them, that the saints began to praise and worship. They worshiped God. They said, and said, the smoke of their torment arises forever. And he said, oh, praise God. Hallelujah. Our God reigns. He has vindicated his holy name. The highest point of worship in the entire Bible is at that point. I don't understand that. I just put it to you plain. I really don't. But it says it. And I know that when God vindicates his name and when his holiness is shown as its reality, when the wrath of God is poured out on his enemies, I will worship him. Worship him. You can see that happen today. You see when God has vindicated himself and when the honor of God has been lifted up from the men and people and events that try to to cause dirt to be put on it, it brings worship to you. Remember, I mentioned this the other day. Remember Eli, who didn't do a daddy's part for his kids, he wouldn't discipline and his boys came up. They were priests too, but they were rats. I mean, they were rotten fellows. They committed adultery right at the tent of meeting with the women that came to worship there. They, they, here they were supposed to be leading the people, and they were rats. And God spoke to Eli through the boy Samuel. Remember the story about Samuel hearing God's voice at night and running to Eli? And Eli said, it's not me. Samuel laid back down and came, heard the voice, and he said, here I am. And Eli said, boy, I believe God must be talking to you. Next time you hear that voice, you say, here, I, here am I, Lord, uh, speak for thy servant here. And so Samuel went and laid back down. He's probably about five, six years old, probably not more than 13 at the most. Lay back down, and the Spirit of the Lord spoke to him again. He said, Here I am. And uh, the Spirit of the Lord said, I've got a message for you to tell uh, Eli. So the next morning he was scared to tell Eli. And Eli said, What the Lord say, boy? And he said, uh, I, I don't know. He said, Look, you better tell me. Did you tell me? And if you let one word slip out of your mouth, you tell me what it said. So Samuel did. He said, Eli, the Lord said, He's going to punish you by thus, 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 and thus. And uh, because you hadn't been a daddy, you hadn't restricted your boys, you've let them be wild. And so old Eli, he was an old man by then, he didn't say, oh, it's not fair. Oh, God, give me one more chance. If only I had the, why are you doing this to me, God? My boys, oh, my children, why, God, why? He bowed his head and he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. When God's holiness, which includes his wrath as well as his love, his love and his wrath are the same thing depends on your relationship to him. When his love wrath is revealed, there's nothing left to do but worship him. Enjoy and it's absolute unleashed splendor to worship God. The love and the wrath of God, the best thing I know to illustrate it, is fire. Fire is burning and a man is about to die from the cold and from hunger comes up warms himself at the fire, cooks food over it. He said, fire is life. Fire will warm you. Fire will cause the blood to run in your veins. Fire feeds you. Another fellow comes along and falls into the fire, and it kills him. He said, fire is death. Fire hadn't changed. But the man's relationship to the fire changed. 
God is the same. His wrath is the same thing as His love. It depends on your relationship to Him. Well, I've preached from Genesis to Revelation and a few side trips in between. 